Hello and thanks for tuning into the Cycling Business Podcast. My name is Alex Palmer and each month I'm joined by a panel of guests to discuss a particular theme affecting the bike industry. Your feedback, comments and suggestions are always welcome either on Twitter at AJM Palmer or in the comments section of this post on cyclingbusinesspodcast.com. In this month's edition, we're talking to two entrepreneurs who have had success in using Kickstarter to launch their companies. With Kickstarter and other crowdfunding platforms becoming increasingly popular with cycling-related projects in recent years, what exactly goes into making a successful campaign? What are the pros and cons of the different crowdfunding platforms? And what other funding options exist once the Kickstarter campaign is finished? Okay, so let's meet today's guests. We've got Adam Volmer from uh, Faraday Bikes and Doug Berner from uh, Lumo. Um, uh, we're going to get into it in a couple of minutes. I'm, I'm keen to talk to you both about your relative experiences on, on Kickstarter. I guess before I did that, I just wanted to get your take on you know, why you think Kickstarter has been so popular in the cycling market. It seems to be really booming. Lots of products on there. Lots of people using it to, to create new products. What's your take on on kind of the fit with cycling and why it's doing so well. Maybe, maybe Doug, you can shoot first. Yeah, sure. I think the, the consumer crossover is, feels really clear. Yeah, it's, a, it's an educated you know, person that's looking typically on Kickstarter for products. And you know, I guess typically it's also been the, the more city dwellers um, who have really led the way in, in cycling too. So uh, there seems to be just a lot of crossover between the two, uh, two markets really. Yeah. What, what about you, Adam? Yeah, I think about a couple things. Um, one, I think that uh, Kickstarter, I think inherently, um, at least by intention, is, is driven by, by passion in a lot of ways. So I think people will kind of, you know, take a project from, uh, you know, pet project to commercial scale or, or at least try to through Kickstarter. And I think that aligns well with cycling. I think a lot of people, um, you know, are drawn to, to be entrepreneurs in the area because they, they, they love it and they think about it and they want to commit time to it. So. Um, and I think it, it's a model that uh, lets new ideas come out that aren't coming from the bike industry. So, yeah, Do you, is, is it fair to say? Is it fair to say that that um, there's definitely more of a niche with urban cycling products on Kickstarter than say mainstream, you know, more competitive um, products? Yeah, that would probably feel that way. And I think there's there's also an element that um, you know Kickstarter really appeals to the the more um, social entrepreneurs and also people interested in social entrepreneurs. And again, that seems to be a, a good crossover with um, you know, a typical person who likes to get on their bike and, and save the planet a little bit than, uh, than they would do in their in their car. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think also like I think the urban market is the is the growth area in the in the industry. So I think that's where people are naturally uh, going after. I think. Kickstarter entrepreneurs are you know, generally younger, and I think that the younger uh, kind of audience is, is probably more interested in, in the urban market. So I think that explains a lot of that. Okay, um, so let's let's get into the the sort of both of your stories, really. I guess may, maybe Adam, you can you can you can start first. I'm, I'm keen to just hear you know a little bit about your story, how you came up with the idea for Faraday, um, and, and kind of what that path was to get you to the to the Kickstarter in the first place. Um, and there may be a little bit about how the Kickstarter went for you. Yeah. Um, yeah so I'm, I'm an engineer designer. Um, I used to work at a design firm called IDEO. I'm a global design firm. Um, uh, I've always been a, a, a biker, but kind of a more casual one. I you know, raced in college, worked at a bike shop back in the day. 
um, but never really worked in the industry. And um, while I was at IDEO, I had the chance to uh, lead kind of a side project um, to reinvent sort of the future of, of urban you know, cycling. Um, and we got quite excited about electric. Uh, it was kind of a category that felt pretty underserved by the industry. The stuff that was, was out there was not super compelling. And living in San Francisco, it felt like an electric bike made a lot of sense for getting more people riding for, for transportation. So we, we built a bike and it was really well received um, through this contest. And um, kind of as a next step, uh, we wanted to, to try to take it to market. And uh, I was really resistant to Kickstarter at first for, for a lot of reasons, but uh, a number of folks that I trusted really pushed me towards it. And uh, so we launched the brand on Kickstarter in 2012 and it, it proved to be great. We had a great campaign, a great success, and it really got us to start. I think that uh, we couldn't have gotten any other way. Can, can, you, can you explain a little bit about what, what was your resistance to using it um, in the first place? Yeah, so there's a couple things. I think a big one was um, we, we were and we still are really unique in terms of price point for Kickstarter. So you tend to think of Kickstarter as like, you know, little widgets, you know, $100 Apple accessories or um, just less expensive stuff where, where you're getting, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of people to pledge a relatively small amount of money. And we sort of flipped that, you know, we were selling a bike uh, at $3,500, um, way beyond what I'd seen any except for a small handful of projects really succeed at. Um, and it just wasn't clear that, that would work. Um, bikes are really experiential. People want to try them and ride them. We didn't know if people would pony up for that. So uh, it just felt really kind of a little risky and unknown to commit a lot of effort and, and time to, to, to find out the answer. But yeah. uh, it, 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 it works well. I, I think I think you hit the nail on the head there. It really is about risk with a high ticket item, isn't it? And I think if I, the parallel with, I think we were actually running the Fat Chance one at a very similar time to to you guys. Um, similar experience, you know. It's a high ticket item, you know, in the sort of two to five k range. I think if it goes well, it goes well. But but you know, this may be more of a challenge if it doesn't go well. You've got to get over that hump of, of people, enough people. Um, um, you know, committing to, to quite an expensive product, right? Yeah, and I'm I'm like to this day eternally grateful to the folks, you know, fifty or so folks who who committed to buying this bike sight unseen from a brand that didn't really exist, and, yeah. and those people put their put their necks out, and I think they were really happy with the outcome. But it's a pretty special thing. Yeah, just 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 quickly, how much did you raise then first time around? First time around, we raised about one hundred and seventy-five thousand. Got it. Okay. Um, all right, Doug, let's, let's hear your experience. You're obviously coming at this from a, a different part of the world geographically. Um, uh, product is, is sort of, you know, in, in, in the related um, category. Um, how, how did your experience differ or was it the same? Um, yeah, it was, it was an incredible experience from start to finish because it, it not only, you know, gave us the opportunity to get the concept out to a lot of people and get, you know, not just the backing financially, but also the backing emotionally and from a, a, an ideas point of view as well. So many things evolved through our campaign. Um, you know, we, we, started, we started off, um, you know, really designing Lumo with a very um, self-interested you know, reason, which is I got knocked off my bike twice and, and kind of realized there was nothing on the market that allowed me to, 
to look good off a bike, but be you know, visible to traffic on one. So, you know, it took my um, kind of very personal experience and enabled us to put it out there to other people to, to really say, does this resonate with, you know, other, you know, other city cyclists? And, and the great news was that it did. And it also meant that so many ideas came out of that um, from a, a product point of view and, and future development point of view and that it just made the whole experience much, much more than just raising, raising finance. And, and so those are ideas that you're, that you're actively working on now? Yeah, so we, yeah, we've, we, we built in some of, the, some of the easier, smaller ideas that, you know, that came up were immediately built into the, into the product. So the, you know, the final version you know, has you know, three or four things added to it that you know, the original uh, prototype and concept didn't. Um, and then you know, further down the line, you know, we, it was also just unearthed you know, other needs that people identified beyond just uh, lighting. So, so now you know, we're looking at five years down the line uh, what what is possible for a city cycling jacket to you know, to do for you on your on your daily ride, and so you know, understanding that people would like to be able to you know, charge their mobile devices while they're on the go, be able to navigate from their from their jacket, not necessarily from their bike, um, harness their own you know, their own energy and convert that back into into electricity, you know, answer their answer their phone while they're on the go, you know, all sorts of um, things that we kind of. Had, had in our mind uh, two or three of them, but some of them were complete surprises and, and uh, really made us think. Yeah. And, and how much did you raise? Uh, so we raised £75,000, so it's about $110,000. What a lot of people maybe don't um, see is the work that goes into getting to the point where you're ready to launch a Kickstarter. And, and there's also, I think it's fair to say, there's some costs involved in, in getting to that stage. Maybe, Doug, can, if you can talk about how did... What did you have to do and what did you have to invest in in order to be ready to, to launch the campaign in, in the first place? And then I guess as a, as, as a second part of that, I'm curious you know, whether on balance was your campaign even profitable at the end of it? I, I, my sense is that a lot of Kickstarter campaigns um, are not. They do well at, at selling a bunch of products and then maybe the cost of delivering that can be, um, can be a little bit more than people expected. But what, what was your experience um, yeah, sure. I mean, my uh, yeah, we, we actually went into this with all the all the products designed, and we intended all the way through to to kickstart it. So I guess you know our process took six months from start to finish, from uh, from getting concept to getting onto Kickstarter. Um, but I guess if you if you just take the the actual Kickstarter project and campaign in its own right, um, it was really. Uh, I, I guess probably six to eight weeks in the in the lead up to actually getting on to uh, getting onto the site, and and you know that was you know, going through all of the you know the kind of the due diligence that, that Kickstarter you know look out for to make sure that you know that you are bringing a you know, product to market and that you you, know, you have that um, that sense of responsibility that you, you're taking somebody's money uh, up front and that you're going to you know, deliver on that at the end of the day. Um, you know, through to you know, getting a lot of uh, photography and, and videography shots, obviously, to try and bring to life your idea on Kickstarter and um, requires a you know being able to visualise it for people. It's a it's a very audiovisual friendly way of doing it, and, and it needs it. So, you know, there's a, a good bit of investment there into uh, into shooting a video that really explains the concept. And we were lucky enough also just to to be able to pull in. You know, favors and, and friends who, who had various talents, whether that's photography, uh, copywriting, PR skills, 
you, know, you name it, to, to be able to then convert your idea um, and your page into then a campaign that you know, gets out into, into the public and, and sparks their imagination. Yeah. Did you, I'm curious, did you use any, um, any paid media or advertising to, to promote your campaign? Uh, we did at the very end um, to to give it a, one final little boost, um, but yeah, that was literally in the last two or three days um, when we were already past our, our funding point. So we wanted to just give it a, that extra little little kick. So yeah, we we did a little bit of Facebook advertising to to help push that along. Um, what about with the with the Faraday bike, Adam? I'm I'm, I'm assuming there you obviously had to invest um, heavily in in producing some prototypes and, and getting it to a point where people could really see what it was all about and what it did. Yeah, we, um, I guess we had a bit of a different starting point than, than what Doug is describing. We, we, had a, we, we had a prototype with the bike from the Oregon Manifest, the design contest we sort of had originally built it for. And we knew there was going to be some changes to it. We wanted to build a, another bike that was a little bit more reflective of what we thought our backers would get from Kickstarter. So we, we did that. It was a, it was a you know, building a, a one-off prototype electric bike from scratch was, was not a small effort. You know, even then, that, that was still pretty conceptual. Um, it evolved an amazing amount from, from there to where it finally wound up for production. That was a big effort. We were, we were starting from scratch. So we, we, you know, we had to build a website to have a, a web presence. You know, similarly, six to eight weeks of just research and diligence and photography, designing a video. Um, you know, video can, can take a lot of time. Uh, an effort. And uh, I think, I mean, for us, we did it in 2012. So we were, it was March of 2012. We were starting to think about the campaign and um, really the early days of Kickstarter. So I think we, we spent a lot of time, honestly, just trying to wrap our heads around Kickstarter and figure out what it was and how it worked and how to connect with people and looking at examples of who had done that well and just kind of basic, basic research. Yeah. And I guess one of the things with, um, with Faraday I was, I was keen to talk about is obviously you've since been back for a second Kickstarter campaign. Obviously, you, you learn an awful lot from the first that, that sort of gives you things that you can improve in the second. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your second time around experience? Did it go as well as you expected? I guess th- there's a debate as to whether going back to Kickstarter several times is, is, is positive or not. So I guess I'm just I'm keen to get your take on it. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. We just wrapped up our second campaign for for the bike that we have, you know, basically wanted to build ever since the first one, uh, which we call the Cortland. It's our step through version. Um, and your question is is interesting. Did it do what we expected, or did we hit our expectations? I think one thing with Kickstarter, in a lot of ways, I really don't think you know what to expect. So you set a goal. You know, and that goal is either, you know, the literal amount of money that you need to get this thing out or it's some figurative emotional goal that's going to convince yourselves or your investors or your manufacturers that this thing is worthwhile. But I really think it's hard to know what to expect. So I think as, as kind of a rough goal, we said, well, we, we certainly would like to beat what we did the first time around. And, and we did that. So we're thrilled with that. You know, it's pretty different. I think when we... You know, there's, a, there's a huge difference, I think, between launching a brand and, and launching a new model. And, and for us, I think it was quite exciting to be launching a new model and, and, and relevant and important to our business. But, you know, in the grand scheme of things, bike companies launch new models you know, every day. And, you know, how, how exciting is that? And I think that that really translated in terms of the press that we were able to get or maybe the lack of press. So 
I think we had to rely this time around a whole lot more on our audience. So the people who, who own Faraday's, who ride them, love them, uh, who've been wanting this bike for their friends and family. Um, so it was kind of a different approach to how to promote and build the campaign. And I think in a way it was, it was rewarding to know that it was sort of like um, much more organic in that sense. Mm-hmm. Just remind us how much the second one raised. Uh, we did 188 Okay. So about about ten thousand more than the first one. It wasn't wildly different. Yeah, you know, I think now we have a little bit more diversity in our price points. We have we have a couple of different price targets, and we did a little bit of kind of early bird promotion. So we did about ten k more, but probably about twenty percent more actual number of bikes sold. So that felt like a big win. We got more, you know, many more bikes on the road through this one. And we also have it's interesting too. We have we have now a retail channel as well you know, been able to kind of drive some pre-orders and sales and engage our, our retailers as well in, in the launch effort, which has been not, not without its challenges, but interesting as well. I, I bet. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, there is a school of thought that Kickstarter works really well as a, as a sort of product pre-sales platform. And I think that's where the companies that use it well, you know, second, third, fourth times around, they're just each time they launch a new product, they put it up on Kickstarter and, and it's, a, it's a mechanism for generating pre-sales. Doug, you haven't been back to Kickstarter after your first experience, have you? Uh, not yet, no. Not yet? Is, is it something that you're, you're thinking about? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, so we, we haven't yet released any further products from the ones that we, that we launched on Kickstarter. So um, yeah, it's certainly in our plan. We've got some new products arriving later this year. And so we'll be definitely on our radar to, to go down the same path. I mean, from, from our experience, you know, I think with all due respect to Kickstarter, Kickstarter seems alive and well, and, and that's great. You know, we, we definitely felt a different sense of response this time around. I think that, uh, and I don't know, again, if that was more due to this being just a new product as opposed to a whole new brand launch, but we heard from a lot of media outlets, you know, a degree of, of um, maybe saturation or, or apprehension around covering Kickstarter launches um, that, that was not there at all the first time around. I think a lot of the press and excitement that we were able to generate the first time was as much about the idea that a bike company was putting a bike on this cool new crowdfunding platform as about the bike itself. And I think that has, that's certainly played through. So we, we wanted a platform to do a crowdfunding or to do a launch on Kickstarter seemed like the best of the alternatives. But I, I think there's, I think it's a different landscape now than it was three or four years ago. Yeah. You, you bring up a point I wanted to talk about, actually, about the difference between these platforms. I mean, we're, we're, we're just referring to Kickstarter. There are obviously other alternatives out there, the main one being Indiegogo. I think, for me, there's, there's two big differences between the two. I think Indiegogo, you get to keep the money if you don't reach your goal, um, whereas Kickstarter, if you don't hit your goal, you don't get any of the money at all. And, and the second one is really down to, to the, the respective reach of each platform. I think Kickstarter far outweighs anything else just in terms of, of, of traffic and user numbers. You guys both ended up at Kickstarter. So did Fat Chance. Did you, did you consider other platforms or, or not? Yeah, we certainly did consider Indiegogo, but you, know, you kind of hit the nail on the head. It, it was just you know, sheer numbers that were, was the, the draw to, to Kickstarter. So, yeah, it, and, and I think that sense of all or nothing on Kickstarter also adds to the campaign. You know, it, it means that there is an urgency and there is, you know, not just that urgency from you as the, as the creator, but also from the crowd itself that, you know, if they don't 
come in and back this project, then it's not going to happen. Um, and I think I think that gives a, a, a bit of a reality check to the to the project owner too as well. I think the thought of the thought of Indiegogo getting partway to your target and still going ahead is a little bit counterintuitive in some ways to to the whole concept of of the crowdfund. It's, if you haven't got enough to, to get it off the ground, then you know, you, you're not probably going to be a little bit stuffed trying to get it to, to your consumers. Yeah. I guess th- there's a question in there also about picking what that target is, right? <laughs> and um, especially with Kickstarter, you need to pick a, a fundraising target that's, um, that gives you some stretch and that forces you, to, uh, forces you and your audience to, to do everything you can to get towards it. I guess if you pick too low a target, you know, you end up, you hit it, everybody relaxes, says, oh, it's funded and it, and it doesn't do as well as it could do. Uh, maybe, Adam, how did you sort of, how did you arrive in, at your fundraising targets on either campaign? Yeah, I think that's a super tricky one. I, I mean, we, the first time around, we, we well, both campaigns, we, we set a target of $100,000. Um, the first time around, that was, you know, it was one of the hesitations I had going into Kickstarter. We knew that that wasn't going to be enough money to get this product to market. But, but what it did represent was a sufficient volume where it would make sense to even pursue this. So I think for us, a hundred, you know, a hundred thousand was going to fund like, I forget exact numbers, but you know, it was going to hit our minimum uh, quantity with, with the manufacturer. And we said, well, we'd have to, you know, figure out where the rest of the capital comes from to, to cover tooling, investment, development, et cetera. But, you know, at least we're going to hit the number of bikes we need to build. I think, I think it is super, I think many people don't realize how many companies on Kickstarter have some form of outside funding, wherever that may come from. Because the reality is it's so, 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 so hard, especially on your first production run. Uh, with the, the difference between you know what you make minus the eight percent that Kickstarter takes and your cost of goods, which are going to be invariably higher than you expect, because the first time around, you know, unless you are making something really, really simple where you are just totally dialed on what it's going to cost to get it to market, there's a gigantic risk uh, in there, and and there's been some, unfortunately, some great examples of. of really smart people just getting, getting caught by that. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a really interesting point. Actually, I guess it touches on that idea of whether, you know, how, how many Kickstarter projects are actually profitable or not. And I think especially when it comes to bike related products, um, it involves, you know, going out and manufacturing a product at a certain cost and selling it at a margin. And you brought up some, some some quite um, substantial um, additional costs that all have to come out of that margin, and I think maybe sometimes people look at these Kickstarter campaigns that have been extremely successful and think, "Oh, that company's doing great; they're off to a flying start." The reality could actually be quite different on the inside, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the way we looked at, at Kickstarter was probably slightly different to to Adam. We we came at it from the point of view we we didn't have extra backing, and it was just our own savings that were that was supporting the business up until that point. So we, we had to be very, very conservative and plan to say, we've got to raise enough to pay for that first production run um, mm-hmm. at the minimum order quantities that we need. Um, so we, we were fortunate enough in that it, it did that and you know, it paid for that minimum order quantity production run to come through and then therefore left us with you know, some extra product then to sell, which then turned it into a you know, profitable project of its own right. 
I think the key thing that, that came out of it for us was it, it funds the products. It doesn't necessarily fund building the business. You know, then the external funding, so whether it is investors or it's the bank or it's you know, raising, some, um, you know, raising some other finance in some way, is so important then to turn you know your your product into a business. Yeah, yeah, that's I I definitely want to come back and talk about kind of those other sources of funding which um, you may have explored post Kickstarter. I guess quickly I, I picked out you know there's there have been some bike related campaigns on Kickstarter and Indiegogo that have done amazingly well. I just wanted to pick a few out and get your take on you know what makes the difference between these ones that that really you know broke records. Um, the most successful one I could find was Storm Saunders, this um, this electric fat bike on Indiegogo. I think it's the, the third most funded Indiegogo campaign ever. They did over $6 million. Another one, a couple of Canadian ones did really well. The Helix Titanium Folding Bike um, did over $2 million Canadian dollars on Kickstarter. And the Van Hawks Carbon Connected Bike did over 800 k Canadian on Kickstarter. Adam, I'm sure you, you paid really close attention to Storm Saunders, it, it's in you know in, in the same category as you guys. What do you think it was that that made that campaign so successful? Oh, the price point, right? <laughs> you know, he's selling a he's selling an electric bike for four hundred and ninety nine dollars. You know, I think I think that's a really interesting example of um, kind of a what, what seems to be more of a trend in a lot of crowdfunding campaigns lately is, is the idea of selling at you know an aggressive. Uh, discount and that's you know higher incentivizing people to buy in um but it again it does sort of you know raises questions about well where where's the actual operating cost from for that company going to come from if they're selling at or below cost um you know the storm bike i to the best of my kind of knowledge those guys are selling probably very very close to what it costs to make that bike and that bike is appears to be something that's fairly readily available off the shelf from, from uh, Alibaba, um, which is fine. They've clearly struck a, a nerve between um, a very attractive price point and a, and a product that they were able to get to, to market with a relatively small amount of development. Yeah, I, I don't, it's not clear to me how that evolves into uh, a sustainable business, but that's their, <laughs> that's their problem to figure out. It's interesting. Those guys are back on Indiegogo again right now. They have a new kind of a new embodiment of that bike it's it's just a instead of a fat tire version it's a kind of a regular thin tire version and it's doing well they've raised i think checked last night seven hundred thousand or so which is impressive and, and way more than we raised but it's it's nowhere near the six or ten million they did the first time around and it you know you, you wonder if if maybe that speaks to kind of a finite market for that crazy bargain basement everything be damned you know, approach. Yeah, yeah. What's your take, Doug? I mean, I guess there was um, there was a, a project with a very similar name to yours, um, the Lumos helmet, which did really well. What made that one so successful? Uh, yeah, so I think for me, the, the projects that do the best on, on crowdfunding sites are the ones that have a genuine piece of innovation and, to Adam's point, are attainable from a price point perspective. You know, anyone can design a... You know, a product that, that you know, can do everything under the sun, but if it costs you, you know, 10 times more than the consumer is prepared to pay for it, then it's never going to fly. So you know, I think Lumos did a great job um, in you know, taking a, an existing safety product, adding a great piece of innovation to it, uh, and getting it out there at a price point that, that felt attainable for, uh, you know, for consumers. 
think when you take those those points all together and yeah, and you and you tell it in a in a nice way, in a you know, it's a, it's a nice story behind it. The two guys um, you know designed it, clearly really smart guys, and uh, and you know have taken this from a, a university project and concept, and you know it's a it's a nice feel good factor to be able to then you know take that and bring it to market. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so let's talk about post Kickstarter. Then you've you've both um, you know you've funded your project. You're working hard to deliver all of the associated products. Tell us a little bit about your experience. What happens next? And in particular, I know you've both kind of visited different sources of funding in that respect. So maybe maybe Doug, you can explain a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I guess the first one is a huge sigh of relief. I think is the uh, the first port of call after a Kickstarter project. It then very quickly evolves into into that and say that transition of saying okay great my, my product is now funded but how do I create a business you know so in the background of obviously then all the production really you know kicking in for us it was all about then you know, going to the market and trying to understand uh, how do we back this now up with a, with a business plan um, that really helps to to translate the Lumo product idea into a into a Lumo you know, business idea um, so we decided that we would um, take you know, the, the fact that we'd managed to crowdfund the product and do the same from an investment perspective. So Crowd, uh, Crowdcube was, was our choice uh, for raising equity investment. And again, a, a, a very different way of, of crowdfunding compared to, compared to Kickstarter. It's much more about the business plan and much more about um, you know, the numbers and the case and the people behind it. Um, rather than just the product, and it was uh, probably more of a more of a targeted um, conversations with uh, specific individuals to uh, to really bring that money in, rather than a, a wider net being cast you know, across the crowdfunding waves. Um, so yeah, it was, it was it, for us again. It just made a huge amount of sense that that cycling resonates with the equity crowdfunding crowd as much as it does for uh, you know, the product crowdfunding crowd. I'm curious. How, how long did you wait between Kickstarter and then and then your crowdfunding campaign? I mean, was it was it a case of let's strike while the iron's hot, or did you have to sort of um, wait a bit longer, prove the business could work, and then go out and raise more money? Uh, we decided to go straight and raise raise money. Um, so uh, we actually completed our Kickstarter project in January last year, and we were on Crowdcube uh, in May June time. You know, we actually raised the equity funding before we'd actually shipped to our Kickstarter backers. And, and the reason for that was to say, really for us, to launch you know, what is a new-to-the-world concept you know, and, and do a good job of it and, and make sure that consumers understood it, we needed to back that up with, you know, with a marketing plan. That, that, makes, that makes sense. It's a, it's a great way to do it. I guess just for the benefit of anybody that doesn't know Crowdcube, it's, it's a, a sort of crowd-based equity investment platform um, in the UK. Correct, Doug? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it, it's, uh, it's available um, to other countries. So um, US investors can invest in it um, with some caveats around um, being accredited investors, mm-hmm. uh, whereas in the UK, it's a self-accreditation you know, on Crowdcube. But yeah, effectively... Uh, we ended up having 100 and, uh, 150 investors from mainly from the UK, but with a, a scattering around the world as well. Um, mainly because I think Crowdcube is only particularly marketing itself in the UK, but it's yeah. uh, 
let's get a little bit more of a global reach. So you got 150 investors investors that raised the total of of how much? Do you mind me asking? Uh, that was just over a quarter of a million pounds. Okay, got it. And and CrowdCube, I guess, hit the headlines in the certainly in the cycling space in the UK recently with Volpine, whose campaign just again just seemed to blow up massively. I think what did they raise? Five million? Uh, no, just about a million. Yeah. Oh, a million. Okay, yeah. Uh, it smashed their target anyway, and I guess really proved that you know cycling is a is a hot subject within that sort of um, private investor crowd in in the UK. Um, Adam, I guess in the United States, from what I've seen, that there aren't many options similar to CrowdCube. I stumbled across one recently, just having moved to Oregon, and I think Oregon's one of the few states that I think passed legislation that that does allow private investors to to invest small amounts. Um, into companies without being a, a so-called accredited investor. Do you want to explain a little bit about, about your funding route that you took post-Kickstarter? Yeah, um, there's, a, there's a couple sites that are similar to CrowdCube in the U.S. and it, it's, it's emerging as well. So I think there's, there's new things kind of coming out. Um, so there, there's, a, there's a handful of sites that will let uh, accredited investors basically participate in an online um, crowdfunding, uh, I guess, or, you know, equity raise. I think we have legislation that is sort of going through uh, Congress or, or is through uh, that's bringing that to kind of a non-accredited uh, group as well. But, but that's, that's on a, that's on a state by state basis, isn't it? I think I'm, I'm not hundred percent sure, but I, I thought. It, the implementation of it may be state by state. I, um, we haven't we haven't done that sort of platform, so I'm not super super familiar with the specifics of it. I'm not either. I just I kind of stumbled upon it literally this week when somebody was explaining yeah. to me that, that Oregon had passed this legislation. Uh, you know, I, I thought if if a state like California passes that same that same law, it would be huge. I think the investment community there is right. potentially massive. This I, I guess just wanted to clarify the idea of an accredited investor, right? That's somebody that's got, you have to have a certain amount that's in your net worth that's available to be, to invest in companies and you have to be accredited by the SEC. Is that right? Uh, I think you can technically sort of self-accredit. You have to have okay. a, a either, either or uh, a certain amount of, of liquidity or a certain um, demonstrated income for, for a two-year period. Yep. So yeah, I think I think that the the job Jobs Act here in the U.S. passed a little while back, kind of opened the door for kind of non-accredited investors participating in uh, equity raises. I think it may be it may be sort of state by state where that's actually been able to happen. I know that a lot of the sites that have come up are still limited to working with only the accredited community, but I think I think it's coming or is here with a couple sites. Um, there's a couple of things too that have been kind of cool that we've seen lately that are not uh, necessarily equity raising, but but more of a lending. So lending is it's actually you know as we kind of grow, we're realizing that's uh, a huge challenge as well as, as capital for production and whatnot. And there's some cool companies doing uh, stuff in that space where you know their you know, banks, at least here in the U.S., are, are pretty loath to, to loan to you if you're a small company that's not yet you know, profitable or highly profitable. So people are pooling you know, small amounts of money through a large amount of private investors and individuals uh, and lending that to small companies. And uh, I think that, that that's actually a really cool model as well. Mm-hmm. 
And and then talk to us a little bit about your your own fundraising campaign that you that you did. Yeah, so we um, we ended up raising money um, uh, through I guess a little bit more of an old fashioned process of, of raising through angel investors. But we did we we worked um, on the site Angel List, which is a popular I guess kind of uh, sort of network online forum for um, angel investors and startups to connect um, here in the US and globally as well. And that was a great platform for us. It wasn't, didn't have necessarily the same kind of like campaign structure to it like Crowdcube does, but simply is kind of a network uh, and, a, and a forum to connect with, with folks who we just would never have gotten to share Faraday with otherwise. That was a pretty fantastic resource for us. Yeah. And is it fair to say, I think, you, you know, your campaign and your product got some really good tech press early on when you when you first launched it did that really help open doors especially in the bay area with with that sort of um that sort of tech biased investor crowd yeah i, mean, I think it did two things i think we were we were super fortunate with, with the press and the interest we got um with the launch i think that was one of the biggest benefits of, of our kickstarter campaign you know you know as much if not more so than the, the actual money we raised and that, you know, that was, was on the one hand, a, a, a hugely valuable way for us to build sales and actually kind of grow revenue and demonstrate that there was really something here. Um, and it was a great, I think, kind of validation point as well for, for investors. So, so both, both in what it did in terms of customer demand and then kind of validation, that was quite helpful. Yeah. Okay. Um, we're, um, we're running out of time a little bit. I guess before we finished, I wanted to just quickly sort of get your advice for anybody who's uh, thinking about going to Kickstarter. What are the top sort of two or three things that, that um, the top pieces of advice you'd give somebody who's, um, who's thinking about it? Um, I, would, I would say that if there's much that you can do up front before your campaign, do it. Yeah, we we uh, didn't manage to get our product into the hands of the media until literally the day before we launched, and um, and for us that meant we were chasing a little bit to to get coverage. We were lucky enough that we did, um, and I think that was because it was uh, you know such a, a kind of innovative breakthrough product that it captured the imagination and, and people wanted to talk about it quickly, which was great. Um, so that would certainly certainly be one. And uh, secondly, is now harnessing you know, the the various uh, tools at your at your disposal, whether it's um, you know Thunderbolt, it's getting getting your social campaign moving really really quickly. It's such a it's such a socially driven way of picking up a business that um, it just means that you that's something you've got to be really on top of and, and make the most of. And, and really, you know, again, it's know which friends you can beg, steal, and borrow from. And it's uh, it really has been a case of understanding. Who can who can help us out in different ways? We, you know, we've had friends who've modelled for us, you know, done photography, videography, and PR. You, you tend to have a great network of, uh, of friends and family who will have talents that will uh, be able to contribute into your into your project. So, and we typically find they they love being involved. So, make sure you use them. <laughs> Good stuff, Adam. <laughs> um, yeah, I would just say the the thing I think. It, it, you're, if you're going on Kickstarter, chances are you're probably a product person. You obsess about product details and, and uh, design and, and uh, you know, those, that side of the business, which is super important and critical. But um, and you can obsess over the campaign. You should. Uh, I think the detail you put into it, the photography and the video shows and, and really matters. But 
at the end of the day, people have to see it. And I think you have to have a really clear strategy for, for how you're going to make that happen, whether it's through social shares, whether it's through paid uh, promotion, whether it's through press. I think if it's going to be through press, our kind of recent experience is that uh, it's going to be harder now than it, than it was. I think the more that you can have a clear, compelling story that, that's unique and is sort of apart from the fact that you're simply on a crowdfunding campaign, uh, I think that's what's going to make or break the difference. Okay, good. Good, good, uh, good stuff. Um, so let's end. I just, I just like to sort of give both of you guys your sort of opportunity. T- tell us what the future looks like for your company. So you know, um, the next sort of three years. Where do you expect to be? You know, what are your, what are your goals? That sort of thing, Adam. Yeah. So we're um, a lot of exciting stuff. We're we're really committing hard to building out a retail channel in the U.S. here to get as many people on bikes as possible. That's going great. Um, and then we. Uh, we are just launching this year for the first time uh, in Europe, uh, which has been, I think, one of the harder things for us with Kickstarter uh, from day one was that we had to tell, you know, hundreds of <laughs> hundreds of European customers who would have loved to own a Faraday that for logistical and other reasons, we, we couldn't get them on. And, and, uh, and we can now. So we're super excited about that. It's going to be a lot of work, but I think it's a whole new uh, part of the world that, that loves cycling and, and love our bikes. And uh, I'm uh, super fired up for that. Cool. Yeah, it should go down well with the with the Dutch and German market, I would I would guess. I think so. I think the UK too is going to be really good. I think the, the cycling market's picking up there, so I'm excited. Yeah, I, I mean I it's I haven't been back for a while. Doug, what's what's the um what's the take on e-bikes in the UK at the moment? Yeah, they're just really starting to to pick up some momentum. Um, there are some yeah, nice yeah, e-bike specialty retailers, uh, independent retailers popping up. Um, and I think people are realizing that there's much more to them than, um, than just for you know, people who want you know, the assistance from a, you know, from a physical point of view. It's also just a fun, fun way of getting around uh, and you know, it's really convenient. Um, I definitely turn from being a, a slight um, cynic into being a big fan. Uh, it seems like they got on one and I thought it was, it was such a good fun way of getting around. Okay. And then, and then Doug, t- tell us a little bit about your, your sort of plans for the future. Yeah, so three things really for us. Um, the first one is we're just now embarking on expanding our uh, our reach into other geographies. So we've focused on the UK since we actually launched the product in uh, in September, um, but we've just taken on our first two retailers in Germany, um, and we're actually exhibiting at the Berlin Bike Show uh, next week, and, and we'll be having opening lots of conversations with uh, in the US and, and the Far East in particular, um, as well as Northern Europe. Um, so that's the big geographical expansion will be um, the number one thing on our list. And number two is actually we're starting to field some really interesting inquiries about collaborating uh, across other product categories. So uh, taking Lumo technology and putting it into um, whether it's uh, children's clothing, um, whether it's into uh, your uniforms for, for police, for outdoor workers. Um, so areas that we, we wouldn't have anticipated and we probably wouldn't play in ourselves, but we you know, certainly interesting for us to explore the, the kind of the licensing and collaboration opportunities. Further down the line, I uh, alluded to earlier on, is um, we have a, a project of a jacket of the future, which is you know, what could um, a cycling jacket do um, and how can it help you to, to get around you know, more easily, more safely, uh, and having more fun while you're doing it. So again, lots of conversations opening up now, um, whether it's uh, with you know, tech providers, app providers, even down to uh, you know, payment providers about what we can build into into our jacket. So yeah, really exciting times. 
Good, good. Exciting stuff for both you guys. Listen, um, thanks for, for taking the time to, um, to participate and give us a you know, really interesting insight into both of your experiences. Um, so thanks, Doug. Absolute pleasure. And thanks, Adam. Pleasure. Thank you. That's a wrap for this month's episode. As ever, I'd love to hear any feedback on the topic we discussed today, either on Twitter at AJM Palmer or in the comments section of this post on cyclingbusinesspodcast.com. Until next month. Mm-hmm.